You're listening to Social Science Fiction, a podcast that blends political science and nerd culture, examining the politics of science fiction and fantasy. Hi there, and welcome to Social Science Fiction. Today, we're talking about the fiction that commented on the administration of George W. Bush. So I had this idea for this episode recently while I was watching the show Avatar The Last Airbender for the first time. This is a show that I missed when it was originally on. I think originally Avatar was on just when I was leaving the age where I'd be watching Nickelodeon. So I missed it at the time. But since it's been on Netflix, my girlfriend got me to watch it because she loved it. So I started watching Avatar and great show. I loved it. Glad I checked it out. And while I was watching it, By the third season, I was very aware that this was a show of the mid-2000s. The little hints, the subtle little comments on what was going on in U.S. and global politics at the time was very evident to me. And it made me realize a lot of fiction of the era had a certain style to it. There were just so many shows, movies at the time that were really interested in making political statements about the Bush administration, the war in Iraq, the war on terror. And I started thinking about all the stuff that came out around that time during those years, the mid to late 2000s. And I just realized there was so much stuff like that. And I came to realize the political debates of that era, the controversies, the upheaval, really kind of left their mark on that era of fiction to the point where if you're into politics and if you lived through that era and you watched a lot of different TV shows or movies, you can probably go back and watch stuff. Even if it's something you've never seen before, you can say, yep, that came from this era. Because a lot of these things just have a certain feel to them. They make the same comments on stuff. And so for today, I just wanted to talk a little bit about some of the stuff that came out of that era and how it commented on the politics of the time. So this is the George W. Bush administration seen through the lens of sci-fi and fantasy of the era. And so, Avatar The Last Airbender sort of got me thinking about this, so there's a good place to start. And again, if you've never seen Avatar The Last Airbender, definitely worth checking out. It's something I only recently discovered, and I loved it. I loved the series. I loved finally exploring this for the first time. It's one of those pieces of nerd culture that I've never been a part of, so I never understood the memes and the jokes related to it, and it's fun to go back and see all that stuff now and understand what people are talking about. So it's a lot of fun, and a very political show. For a kid's show, it deals with some very serious and sometimes dark political themes. This is a show that touches on colonialism and genocide, racism and classism. It really does deal with some complex ideas. Of course, there is a weird tension there because it is a kid's show. It was made for Nickelodeon. So there are some weird moments here. So you have a show where, you know, we're dealing with these dark issues. The entire series is about this ongoing war where one civilization is basically trying to conquer and or wipe out all other civilizations. Again, genocides have occurred leading up up to the beginning of the series. It's very dark, but at the same time, we never see anybody die on the show. Our heroes spend three seasons fighting in this war against people who are attacking them with swords and spears and even magical fireballs and stuff, but no one ever seems to die. They always manage to knock the soldiers attacking them into a river or something, and it being a cartoon, of course, once you've landed in waist-deep water, suddenly you're out of the fight. You can't fight anymore because that's how cartoons work. But yeah, soldiers are always knocked 
knocked into a river or a lake or they just get hit in the head and knocked out or they get disarmed and they just give up. So there's a weird tension here. It's, oh, we're fighting this evil empire that wiped out the airbenders. They destroyed an entire civilization, but we're never going to see anyone like actually on screen get killed. So there is kind of a weirdness there, but you accept that. It's a cartoon. They can explore these ideas and we can appreciate that, but they're not going to actually show anything too dark. It's still, at the end of the day, a kid's show. But anyway, while they're not showing the real dark stuff, they do touch on these themes. And I think it's by the third season that we really see this stuff being tied back to the Bush administration and the politics of the time. And it's because during the third season, this is when we start to see the show exploring the villains a little bit more. And I think this is just generally good for the show. The first two seasons, the bad guys, the Fire Nation, are just kind of generic cartoon villains. They're just bad guys, and it just seems that they're out to conquer the world because, ooh, we're evil and we want to conquer the world. But by the third season, they actually start characterizing their villains a little bit more. We start to see what's going on within the Fire Nation. We learn about the leader, the Fire Lord, and his predecessors who sat on the throne and what their motivations are. And again, this is just good for an interesting narrative. And it speaks to how seriously the writers took their job in the show. They could have just taken the easy way out and said, it's a kid's show, it's a cartoon. We can just have a cartoon villain. Just, ooh, I'm evil and I want to conquer the world. But they actually give us interesting villains with real motivations. And what we learn is that the Fire Lords, they're doing horrible, evil things, but they do seem to see themselves as the good guys here. We learn that the current villain, Fire Lord Ozai. His grandfather started the war, and what we learn is that the guy who started the war justified it on the grounds that his nation, the Fire Nation, was culturally and technologically advanced. They were doing really well. They were prosperous. And he thought he should make the rest of the world a better place this way. He should bring his culture, his civilization to the other nations of the world. And this will be for their benefit. And that's kind of how he justifies beginning to invade all these other places and starting a war. And again, if you lived through the 2000s, if you were politically engaged during this era, this is going to sound very familiar. This is how critics of the Bush administration and critics of the war in Iraq painted George W. Bush and his cabinet. This is Avatar portraying their villain basically as a cartoon version of George W. Bush. He's a neoconservative. He is essentially guided by a neoconservative political outlook. And during the Bush administration in the lead up to the war with Iraq, this neoconservative philosophy was really guiding a lot of U.S. foreign policy and it was used to justify the U.S. interventions in the Middle East. Beyond the weapons of mass destruction, that was generally the first justification we heard from Bush and Cheney and Rumsfeld and so on. It was, yes, we think they have weapons of mass destruction, they're dangerous. But usually following that was this idea that we can bring U.S.-style democracy democracy to Iraq, and that's going to fix Iraq. It's going to make Iraq a better place. And from there, it's going to help democracy spread throughout the Middle East. And this was a core part of neoconservatism. Neoconservatism as sort of a foreign policy outlook was kind of based on the idea that U.S. values, Western culture, Western civilization, all these things are basically universal. That deep down, everybody wants to live the way we live in the West. And if we only remove the dictators, the bad guys, 
show people in other parts of the world how good they could have it if they embrace Western culture, then people will embrace it. A core part of what the Bush administration was selling in the lead-up to the war with Iraq will be greeted as liberators. The Iraqi people, once we're there, are going to welcome us. They're going to be grateful that we toppled Saddam. They're going to be grateful that we're bringing our brand of democracy to them. They're all going to be eating McDonald's and drinking Coca-Cola in a week. That was the argument. And this is a core part of neoconservatism. The idea that these ideals are universal and it's possible to use American military might to bring these values to other parts of the world and that this will make the world a better place and it will make the world safer for the United States. This is the larger argument of the Bush years. After 9-11, it's the world is a dangerous place. 9-11 shows that the way we can make things better, the way we can fight these terrorists is bring democracy and American values to other parts of the world and we have the military means to do it and if we do it, we're helping other people and we're helping ourselves. We're preventing another 9-11 by fighting the bad guys overseas and bringing our civilization to these places. And there was, of course, criticism of these ideas, and you saw a lot of this make its way into the fiction of the time. And again, Avatar, I think, is doing precisely that. This is how the Fire Lords in Avatar are presented. They are neoconservatives of their world. The Fire Nation is amazing. We are the most advanced civilization in the world and if we only bring our civilization our culture our values to the rest of the world we will make the world a better place and we can use this philosophy to justify war invasion conquest and then things sort of get out of hand and we're genociding other civilizations so to me when I was watching Avatar for the first time by the time we get to the third season very clear that's what they're doing the writers are taking a shot at the neoconservatism of the Bush administration it's taking the philosophy of George W. Bush and applying it to the villain and saying, this is the result of that philosophy. This is what you're getting. And Avatar was certainly not the first or the last piece of fiction to do this kind of thing, to put the words of George W. Bush in the mouths of villains. I've talked about this before, but it bears repeating. I think by the time we get to the end of the Star Wars prequel trilogy, Emperor Palpatine and Anakin Skywalker are sounding very much like George W. Bush. At the end of Revenge of the Sith, when Anakin yells at Obi-Wan, if you're not with me, then you're my enemy. This is quoting George W. Bush almost word for word when Bush spoke after 9-11 saying we're going after terrorists and you're either with us or you're with the terrorists. You're either with us or you're one of the bad guys. Really same idea. And I really criticized this when Star Wars did it. I think Avatar did it much better. They did it in a much more interesting, much more believable way. Star Wars, I think it comes off as goofy and contrived. These lines just sound weird coming out of Anakin Skywalker. And I think when you hear Palpatine making some of these similar speeches rather than making George W. Bush and his philosophy sound like the philosophy of Emperor Palpatine and the evil empire, I think instead it makes Palpatine end up sounding like a governor from Texas. And I think it just makes Palpatine look less scary and less evil. I think Avatar did it way better, where these ideas are used to criticize the Bush administration and neoconservatism in a way that still makes these ideas believable and understandable. So not everybody did it well. I think Star Wars, the prequels were kind of a mess and the political commentary was sort of shoehorned in there at the end and it just sort of muddles the themes and the message of Star Wars. But Avatar did it really well. Now, another movie that I think beat out the Star Wars prequels and did this kind of theming and messaging well was the movie V for Vendetta. 
another movie that comes out in the Bush era and to me pretty clearly meant to be a commentary on the Bush administration and the kind of political upheaval we were living through. And interestingly, based on a comic book that was written in the 80s, long before the Bush administration, the war on terror, Alan Moore, the writer of the comic book, was more commenting on the 80s and Thatcher and Reagan and his concerns about a resurgence of fascism and Alan Moore pushing a very anarchist message in the comic book. But when the movie gets made, it seems that the writers and producers take these ideas from the comic book and sort of repurpose them and reshape them to be more about the current age we were living in. And you can see this in little things, tiny Easter eggs. I believe I remember in the movie a propaganda poster at some point that references the Coalition of the Willing and this was the name given to the coalition of countries that joined the United States in the war in Iraq. So little things like that. Some more obvious things. The main targets of state oppression go from being the Jewish people in the comics to being Arabs and Muslims in the movie. Commentary on how post 9-11 it's Arabs and Muslims who are more likely to be targets of racism and prejudice and they're the ones that are more concerned about government oppression being rounded up and put into camps. And so we get is a movie that still has the same basic themes of the comic book, anti-authoritarianism, individuals fighting against authoritarian government, but with changes made to make the villains a little less 80s and a little more 2000s. Less Thatcher, more Tony Blair. And again, I think V for Vendetta did this well. Solid movie, a lot of fun. The political messages didn't feel forced or contrived. They felt like an integral part of the movie. Now, of course, one of the big political differences between Avatar and V for Vendetta is Avatar mostly about criticizing the foreign policy of the Bush administration. It's about that neoconservative foreign policy that can be used to justify foreign invasions, foreign state building, and so on, while V for Vendetta focused on the fear of losing our liberties at home, commenting on things like the Patriot Act, the fear of people being arrested and held without trial, the fear of outgroups, Arabs, Muslims being targeted by a government that portrays them as the enemies, as potential threats to the state. And another show that focused more on these elements was the sci-fi series The 4400, which was also a really great and underrated sci-fi show, and I'll probably do an episode just on that show at some point in the future. Really great show, interesting premise, interesting ideas, and the larger plot deals with a lot of different things, but I still think you can see the issues of the Bush years leaving a mark on the show. And if you've never seen it before, the basic premise is one night there's a big flash of light over a lake in, I think, Washington State. And suddenly, out of nowhere on the shore of the lake, 4,400 people appear. And these are people who had disappeared, just seemingly vanished off the face of the earth at various times over the past hundred years or so. So people, some of whom disappeared last year, some who disappeared in the 1940s, all of a sudden 4,400 of these people reappear, no memory of what happened to them, having not aged a day since they disappeared and the show then revolves around what happened to these people why are they suddenly reappearing and is there some dark plot behind all this and great show a lot of fun lots of interesting stuff to talk about but i'll just say i think you can find the bush era influences 
in how these 4,400 people are treated at the beginning of the first season. What we see happen is immediately after these people return, the U.S. Army shows up with government agents and these people are rounded up and taken to some secret government facility where they're kept under lockdown, not allowed access to lawyers, not allowed to talk to the press while they're investigated. And of course, it's presented as, well, we don't know who these people are, where they came from, are they truly the people that disappeared? Is this part of some kind of attack? Are they sleeper agents? We have no idea what's going on. They're a potential threat. And of course, the counter argument is you're depriving human beings of basic civil rights. These people have not been accused of any crimes. You have no evidence that they're a threat to anybody, and you're depriving them of their freedom without trial, without probable cause, without giving them access to a lawyer. And this becomes sort of the primary conflict in the early episodes of the first season. What do we do with these people? What rights are they entitled to? And again, I think this was very much inspired by the political concerns of the day. This is a time when we're talking about what do we do with suspected terrorists? Are terrorists caught on foreign soil enemy combatants? In which case we can hold them kind of until the war is over, they're POWs. Or are they criminals? Are we accusing them of a crime? In which case they're entitled to trials where we have to present evidence, but the government doesn't want to present evidence because it's classified and so on and on and on. And just the concern that the war on terror is going to be used to begin to chip away at basic civil liberties, that people are going to begin to lose their rights because the government is going to argue these people are a threat to national security. We don't have to give them the same rights that other people are entitled to. And that's what I think the 4400 is really touching on here. But again, with the 4400, I don't think commenting on the Bush administration and the politics of the time is really the core of the show. It just worked its way into the show kind of naturally. It's just one theme in a larger narrative. If you want something that really makes the Bush years and the tensions of the Bush years sort of the core of the plot, you've got to go to the limited series comic book Black Summer. And Black Summer is something I never read, but I remember when the first issue came out in the 2000s, and I remember it created a moderate controversy in sort of the comic book community and in nerd circles at the time because it was just so overt and over the top in its political commentary. And again, I never read it, but I know the premise and how the series starts. In the setup is a super powerful, beloved superhero learns that the U.S. president, and I think they leave the president unnamed in the series, has committed war crimes and concluding that there's no other way to bring the American president to justice, this superhero busts into the Oval Office and murders the president and then comes out and confesses the whole thing on TV, explains he committed war crimes, this is the only way to stop it, and that sort of kicks off the series. And then it's about the fallout of that action. And created a bit of a controversy in nerd circles because it was kind of shocking at the time, seeing a comic book being so blunt about things, it was very clear that this series is commenting on the Bush administration. This is sort of the writers saying, yeah, we think the Bush administration is guilty of war crimes, and hey, you know, what would be justified to stop this kind of thing? And so, not subtle at all, and having your superhero kick off the series 
just murdering the president. I think yeah, you can see how it kind of stirred people up and got some people very offended. Other people were defending the artistic and political statement of it all. And I think the controversy kind of died down very quickly. But I still remember it was briefly a big thing in comic books and in the larger nerd culture. And so, all interesting stuff. I can't officially recommend all these things. Like I said, I never read Black Summer, but I probably will go back and look at it now after talking about this, because now I'm interested in how all of this stuff was portrayed. But everything else I've talked about, great stuff, worth seeing. But the, sort of the common thing tying all this together it was all, to one degree or another, commenting on the Bush administration and the Bush years with the intent of criticizing the Bush administration and Bush policies. And I think a lot of the fiction of the time took that approach, kind of went in that direction. But I'd you not all of it. And if you want something that's being influenced by the politics of the time and seemingly commenting on it, but taking more of a pro-Bush administration position, I'd argue you've got to go to The Dark Knight, possibly the most beloved of the Batman movies, at least of the Nolan era. Going back and watching that movie, I get the sense that it's downright conservative in its philosophy. And in fact, I'll just say as an aside, I think Batman has always been more of a conservative character. I think comic book superheroes, I think the superhero genre in general tends to lend itself to more conservative themes and messages, just a more conservative genre. And arguably this is changing. I think we may be seeing a shift there. Comic books may be drifting to the left a little bit, and there's controversy about that. Comic book fans of different political affiliations yelling at each other about what comic books are and what they're supposed to be. Not something I want to get into here, but I may explore what I argue is the traditional conservative bent in comic books and especially superhero stories in a later episode. But for now, I'll just say I think The Dark Knight in particular is a pretty conservative movie, and it's one that I think comments positively on a lot of the Bush administration messaging. And just a few things to pull out of here that I think make this case. Primarily, the way the Joker is portrayed. The Joker really is portrayed as a terrorist in this film. Now, in the political science sense, he's not a true terrorist. He doesn't seem to have a political agenda. He's not trying to get any government to adopt or change any policies. He just seems to like blowing shit up. But in his actions, the effect he has on the population, he is a terrorist. And I would argue his behavior, his motivations are portrayed in a way that speak to, I think, the conservative view of terrorists at the time. In the classic explanation for the Joker's motivations we get from Alfred in the middle of the movie when Bruce Wayne and Alfred are talking about the Joker and what does he want, what is he trying to accomplish, and Alfred gives Bruce this whole story about how he used to be like a mercenary or in the British Army or something, and he was chasing a bandit who was robbing caravans and stealing all their gems and stuff, and then later he found out that the bandit was just dumping the valuables, dumping the diamonds and the gems in a river. He didn't want them, he was just in it for the fun, basically. And Alfred's classic line in the movie, some men just want to watch the world burn. In other words, Alfred telling Bruce, look, don't try to understand the Joker, don't try to rationalize him. He just wants to see the world burn. He just wants to do bad things. Don't try to negotiate with him. Fight him and stop him. And I think this is kind of the message we were getting from conservatives in coming out of the Bush administration 
at the time, where I think post 9-11, you were more likely to hear left of center people asking the question, why do they hate us? This was kind of a common question coming out of 9-11. Why do the terrorists hate us? Why did this happen? What is driving them? What motivates them? And can we use this knowledge to deal with them, either negotiate with them or fight them? And I think the most common conservative response to this was, it doesn't matter. They're bad guys. They hate us because we're us. They hate us for our freedom. They just want to blow stuff up. They're bad guys. They want to do bad things. We can't negotiate with them. We shouldn't try. We have to fight them. So I think that was the more conservative response to 9-11. And it's the answer we really get in the Dark Knight. The message of the Dark Knight is some people are just bad. They're just evil. They just want to blow shit up. We can't negotiate with them. We can't reason with them. We can't really get into their heads. We just have to fight them. And how does Batman fight? Fight the Joker in the movie? Well, he engages in at least a little enhanced interrogation. We see Batman basically torturing criminals for information as he tries to track down the Joker and figure out his plans, and justifying this on the grounds that this is the only way to get information out of these bad guys, this is the only way to find and stop the big bad guy. And again, a more conservative message. During the Bush years, we had debates about enhanced interrogation, waterboarding. Are these methods justified? Can we justify torturing people if we know they're bad guys and we know they have information that can be used to stop other bad guys from hurting innocent people? And the message coming out of The Dark Knight is, yeah, it's justified. These are bad guys. This is the only way to make them talk. It's the only way to save innocent lives. We can do this. And going a step further, at the very end of the movie, how does Batman ultimately find and beat the Joker? By using this technology that ties all the cell phones in Gotham into this network that basically maps out the city, basically allowing Batman to use all the cell phones in the city to see any place in the city he wants to, basically spy on the entire city to find where the Joker is and go stop him. And this leads to a minor debate between Batman and Lucius Fox, which with Fox making the argument that this technology is dangerous, it's an invasion of everyone's privacy, it's a threat to everybody's rights, no one should have the power to spy on people like this, no one should have this kind of technology, and Batman arguing, no, in this circumstance, the situation is dire enough, the circumstances are extreme enough, using this technology is justified, at least just in this one instance. And we see Batman talk Lucius Fox into using it, he gives the power to Fox to use this technology to track the Joker, Fox helps him, and then at the end of the movie, we see Batman has rigged the machine so that once he's caught the Joker, Fox just enters in a password, and the whole system shuts down and burns up, and no one can use it again. And again, sort of playing out a debate of the Bush years, this more touching on the Patriot Act, the gathering of metadata, getting access to all kinds of cell phone information and email information, and trying to use this information to track down terrorists, with the left wing arguing this is an invasion of privacy, no one should have the power to do these things, this is an erosion of civil liberties, and conservatives arguing, no, 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 we have to use this right now just in these circumstances because terrorism is such an immediate dire threat. This is justified in this circumstance and we're only going to use it to go after terrorists and once the threat is dealt with we'll never use this kind of thing again or for anything else. In The Dark Knight we see the conservative argument win out. Lucius Fox is convinced by Batman 
and Batman does follow through on his promise to never use this technology again. And the message is, yes, under these circumstances, we can use this kind of technology. It is okay, it is acceptable to invade people's privacy in this way for the sake of catching a really bad guy, and once we've done it, once we've succeeded, we won't go back to this again. So, not everything from that era was a criticism of the Bush administration. We saw stuff that was taking more of a conservative approach, kind of defending aspects of the conservative philosophy and Bush administration arguments. And I think one other movie really comes to mind as having more of a conservative message and speaking to the issues of the time, the movie 300, the Sparta versus Persia movie. This is Sparta, that movie, which, by the way, completely historically inaccurate. Just as someone who's interested in this era of history and warfare of the time, it's absolutely ridiculous. 300 has the Spartans fighting in their underwear and capes for some reason. It's really silly. The Spartans of the time were basically armored like tanks. That's a big part of why they were so tough. They were fighting these Persians who were used to fighting in these open fields, and they were more used to having to run down enemies who were fleeing from them. They were mostly lightly armored. That's a big part of why the Spartans stood up so well to the Persian army. And further, the movie 300 neglects the fact that the Athenians were there, the Athenian navy was there, they contributed to the battle by making sure the Persians couldn't just sail around the Spartans. So, movies completely historically inaccurate. Although, so much fun. It's just fun to watch dudes with shields and spears fight weird monsters and stuff. It's a lot of fun. Very conservative message. The whole movie is really cast as this East versus West struggle, with the Spartans representing Western civilization and individualism and reason fighting against the evil forces of the East who just want to bring slavery and superstition and all kinds of bad things to the West. And again, I think very conservative messaging. This is how conservatives cast the war on terror, cast kind of the struggle we were in at the moment. It's an East versus West struggle. It's Western civilization with all the good things we love against the evil forces of the East, and we have to fight this battle to save Western civilization. And I think that's kind of the message you get out of 300. And again, fun movie, but completely historically inaccurate. And in terms of this idea of East versus West and civilization versus barbarism and so on, also very historically inaccurate. The Spartans were absolutely brutal. They engaged in slavery. The Spartans actually freaked out their Greek neighbors by enslaving other Greeks. I mean, slavery in Greece was very common at the time, but other Greeks believed that you don't enslave other Greeks. Greeks are special. We don't enslave one another. We can enslave the lesser peoples of the world. The Spartans were so into slavery, they even were okay with enslaving other Greeks. So the Spartans were not these bastions of freedom and Western civilization. They were brutal slave masters. And in fact, the Persian Empire of the time, I mean, far from being a bastion of liberal democracy, it was a brutal time. Everybody was kind of brutal and bad in their own way. But the Persian Empire was comparatively more civilized and the people comparatively were more free than they were in Sparta. So the movie is completely historically inaccurate. Still a lot of fun to watch just for the spectacle of the whole thing. And the point is, definitely fits within the era we're talking about and carrying a more conservative message. We are in a struggle of Western civilization versus evil forces coming out of the East that want to destroy Western civilization. 
And so I think it's about time I got to wrap up, but I really have only scratched the surface of this. And I'd love to hear from you guys if anyone can think of anything else that's a really good example of this kind of thing that I'm leaving out. Let me know. I think there's just so much stuff that came out of this era was clearly so influenced by the politics of the time and was so eager to comment either positively or negatively on the Bush administration and the war in Iraq, the Patriot Act, and so on. So what other good stuff am I missing? Let me know on Facebook or Twitter or whatever. I'm probably going to be tweeting about this more as I think about stuff I should have included. But I think that's all I have time for today. So that is a little taste of the sci-fi and fantasy of the Bush era. Thanks for listening. And side rant. Today, since I brought up V for Vendetta, I just want to rant briefly about Guy Fox and the whole Guy Fox mask fad as a symbol of protest. If you've watched footage of protests at all, and if you watched the movie or read the comic book V for Vendetta, you recognize the mask. It's sort of become a mainstay of protesters, people out wearing that mask. It's become very iconic, and it makes sense. It looks very cool. It's very scary and intimidating. But I always thought it was kind of weird how this image has come to represent so many different things. And if you're not familiar with the background here, the original Guy Fox, the man the mask is based on, he became famous for his role in the gunpowder plot, which was an attempt by English Catholics to assassinate James I of England, and once he was dead, install his daughter Elizabeth, who was Catholic, on the throne of England. And the plot was foiled. Guy Fox was tortured and executed, and apparently he was whatever you feel about his politics. He was apparently a badass. He withstood the torture and went to his death bravely. But at any rate, Guy Fox was a Catholic monarchist. He was a man who was interested in installing a Catholic on the throne of England to rule England as a Catholic country. That's who the man was. And after the plot was foiled in 1605 and he was executed in 1606, since then in England, sort of a tradition of celebrating the foiling of the plot developed. Guy Fawkes Night became a thing where Guy Fawkes effigies were burned to celebrate his failure. I'm sure Guy Fawkes wouldn't appreciate knowing that's what became of him. But anyway, you have Guy Fawkes effigies bearing his face being burned to celebrate the survival of a non-Catholic English monarch. And so the face becomes a thing, and then it really becomes popular outside of England when Alan Moore writes his V for Vendetta comic book and has the hero wearing a Guy Fox mask. And in the comic book, the hero who wears this Guy Fox mask fights for anarchism. He's fighting to overthrow a fascist state, and he explicitly expresses anarchist ideas and values. And as I recall, the movie V for Vendetta kind of downplays a lot of the anarchism and gives us more of a generic, just yay, freedom, boo, fascism thing. But still the same basic idea. The Guy Fox mask there represents a fight against tyranny. And since then, we've seen the mask being used by protesters of all stripes. Pretty much any protest, you're going to see people in the Guy Fox mask, and you're going to see it being worn by people who are themselves anarchists, but you're also going to see it being worn by people who belong to more left-wing factions. You're going to see it worn by progressives, by social democrats, by democratic socialists, by communists. 
But I'll also add, I've always found it silly when I see people wearing these masks at protests when I think about the fact that the image itself is owned by, I believe, Time Warner. I believe that that's the company that produced the movie. And so you have a big corporation that owns the rights to this image. And if you buy an official version of the mask, like an officially licensed version of this mask on Amazon or something, one of these big heartless corporations that most left-wingers hate is getting a cut of that money. Now, you might say, well, I can buy a bootleg mask. I can buy a mask that's not officially licensed, that's being made by some small company that's not paying a licensing fee to this big corporation. Well, the issue there is most of those masks, the ones that are being made kind of under the table without officially paying for the license for the image, those are being made by companies in China, in Brazil, by people who are basically working in sweatshops. I mean, some of these masks are just being made in outright authoritarian countries. Some of them are being made in impoverished, corrupt democracies. In either case, the people making them are most likely underpaid, working in horrible conditions. And so, just weird to think that you have protesters out protesting against tyrannical government and the power of evil corporations who run the world, wearing a mask that is making money for a big corporation, and being produced by sweatshop labor in some of the more horribly governed countries in the world. And so that's just weird in itself, but also just weird to think about the path Guy Fox and his image have taken over the years where we're at a point where Guy Fox, over time, has come to represent pretty much every political and social position a person could take. Guy Fox began as a Catholic monarchist, and since then, his image has come to represent Catholic monarchism, opposition to Catholic monarchism, anarchism, big business corporatism, and left-wing politics of every stripe. What a weird trajectory. And so I just wanted to rant about that briefly. Just, I continue to find it weird to see people wearing this mask today. If you're politically on the left and you go to a protest wearing this mask, you are wearing the face of a man who died trying to put a Catholic monarch on the throne of England. That's what the face originally represents. And the mask you bought is likely giving money to a big evil corporation or to some sweatshop owner. That's the mask you're wearing. And again, I get it. The, you know, V for Vendetta made the mask cool. It hides your identity. It makes you look intimidating. I still think it's ridiculous. The mask, it means every, it means so many different things to the point where it really doesn't mean anything anymore, except looking badass, which maybe is enough. But anyway, I had to rant about that briefly. Thank you. Hey everybody, thanks for listening. As always, I love to hear feedback from you. Let me know what you like, what you don't like. Let me know if you have suggestions for topics for future episodes. You can reach me on Twitter at Social Sci-Fi Show, on Facebook at Social Science Fiction Podcast, on Instagram at social underscore sci underscore fi, and you can email me at socialsciencefictionshow at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. See you next week.